This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear why Colorado health officials are sounding an alarm for children's mental health. Plus, we learn about a new body disorder known as Zoom dysmorphia. The more that the pandemic went on, the more people started to hone in on what do I see instead of what do I feel or or how do I connect. We also hear how Grand Junction residents feel about the Bureau of Land Management headquarters being in Colorado. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Many people experienced profound mental health struggles as they were isolated from social activities and important resources throughout the pandemic. And some of Colorado's youth have been the hardest hit. In May, Children's Hospital Colorado declared a mental health state of emergency as suicide attempts by minors rose to levels never seen in the state. One of the hospital's child clinical psychologists, Dr. Jenna Glover, says the state of emergency is still very much in place. Dr. Glover joins us now to talk about what she's seen over the last year and what Colorado's children really need. Dr. Glover, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I imagine that you've seen a lot over the past 18 months. What changes have you seen in children's mental health during the pandemic? Prior to the pandemic, we were seeing pretty steady rise in kids' anxiety and depression over the last decade, but really it skyrocketed during the pandemic with just more kids than we've ever seen before having symptoms of anxiety and depression and really having symptoms um, as extreme as suicidal ideation or even leading to suicide attempts. So really impairing their functioning and had not seen just kind of those numbers and that severity pre-pandemic time. I'm curious what this looks like in a clinical setting. I mean, are you seeing more beds, you know, dedicated for mental health needs being filled, things like that? We're definitely at capacity. So I think one of the things that's probably most notable is just the huge increase that we've seen in kids coming to our emergency departments in crisis, needing stabilization. And because we don't actually have enough beds for kids, inpatient beds for kids who are in severe crisis, some of these kids are getting stuck in emergency departments for several days before they're able to to find a bed for themselves. And so we're just really lacking the resources throughout Colorado to address the needs and and provide necessary treatment for these kids. Well, with the understanding that mental and behavioral health are complicated topic, what do you attribute these changes to? Our kids really have experienced chronic stress for over a year. And, you know, many of those stressors have been related to unpredictability. So not knowing what's happening, you know, with my school, what, you know, if I'll be in person, if I will be remote. Also, just on an individual family basis, you know, families are experiencing more financial stress, family members are getting sick, some children experienced, you know, COVID themselves. And so just the number of uncertain events in kids' lives make it very difficult to cope. And one of the things we know is children develop best when they have consistent routines. And that just has not been possible for our youth during the past year. And as we mentioned, Children's Hospital Colorado first declared the mental health state of emergency on May 25th. Why was that done? What was the purpose? The purpose was a call to action and and a call to awakening to everybody in the state that we truly are in a crisis. Specifically, we saw a 70% increase in emergency department visits in our ER from January into the spring, and 50% of those were for mental health crises. We have never seen that before in our history. And so we are are seeing kids come in just truly remarkable numbers in crisis needing help, and we don't have the resources 
to help them. And so I think the state of emergency was declared because kids truly are in an emergency. We are trying to triage that at this point, but these kids need more help. We, we need more resources for them so we can stop this crisis and support our kids. What's the status of the state of emergency now? I would say that we are uh, still in a state of emergency. We, we have seen a reduction, not quite as many people coming into our emergency department, which happens during summer months historically. However, I do believe that like when we have a return to school in the fall, that we will see those numbers tick up again as kids stress um, starts to increase. The state has allocated funding to address the mental health crisis, to expand the provision of, of beds and inpatient and residential treatment. And so there are some positive things we're seeing that are starting to help address this crisis. But we really are, rather than like COVID, things are getting better, but with mental health problems, things are really kind of in a in a stable place and they could get a lot worse this fall if we don't address it. You know, a lot of with this pandemic has been the focus on just dealing with the immediate impacts of the disease and now vaccinations. Is it possible that this pandemic will now put a new focus on changing so that kids in Colorado can get the mental health resources they need? I think so. And I think that we are really starting to understand as a society the importance of mental health and that it has this major impact on our life functioning and our overall wellness. And so as, as things with COVID are starting to get better and society is starting to reopen, I think we're going to see these residual effects on both adult and ch- um, child mental health. And we'll be able to put a greater focus on that. But I'm certainly heartened by the fact that the state has allocated resources and additional funding to address these problems. This can't be a one-time thing. It has to be an ongoing thing. But my hope is that people are are starting to be really aware of this and the necessity it is for, for us to put our energy and our resources towards solving this problem for our youth. What advice do you have for parents and for caretakers who want to help their children? I would recommend it's really important for us to focus on our children's resiliency and building that back up because it has definitely been strained over the last year. And there are a lot of ways to build resiliency, but the foundation of resiliency really comes down to three core things. The first is sleep. Most of our kids do not get the recommended hours of sleep and are sleep deprived because of it, which has a huge impact on their mental and their physical health. So talking to your pediatrician, understanding how much sleep that your child needs and making sure that they're getting the appropriate hours of sleep. The second is diet. It's a really uh, simple thing, but making sure your kids have the three meals a day with snacks in between and appropriate hydration. Most of our kids don't get enough hydration, especially living at high altitude. And there's a lot of research that shows that our stress management abilities are dramatically reduced in both adults and kids when we're dehydrated. And then finally, just increasing the amount of positive emotional experiences they're having each day. So this is small things like family routines of eating dinner together, getting outside together, doing things where kids can feel wonder and joy and awe. The more positive emotional experiences we have during the day, the the more our resource tank is full. And so when we go through difficult things, we have something to draw on. And so if those three things are focused on by parents, you're creating a foundation in your kid for solid physical and mental health. And then the only other thing outside of that is ask your kids how they're doing, what they're worried about, what they're excited about, and do those check-ins frequently, knowing that over the next six to nine months, your kid's mental health could look different from day to day. But inviting them to talk to you about that and doing it consistently will open up a resource for them where they know that you are a safe place to share those feelings. Dr. Jenna Glover is a child clinical psychologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. Thank you so much for talking with us about this very important issue. Thank you.
The Trump administration moved headquarters for the Bureau of Land Management out of Washington, D.C. and to Colorado. But will the new Biden administration keep it there? We went to Grand Junction, Colorado to ask local residents what they think. Madeline Beck has more for KUNC. The new Bureau of Land Management headquarters is in a sprawling, four-story, brick-and-glass building near Grand Junction's airport. The agency isn't the only tenant, but likely the most controversial. Under the Trump administration, acting BLM director William Perry Pendley touted the move as economical and good policy. We want them closer to the lands they manage and the people they work with rather than two and even four time zones away in Washington. 97% of BLM employees already lived out west, and critics say headquarters needs to be in D.C. where the funding and power is. Nearly 300 BLM employees retired, quit, or found other jobs over the headquarters move. Only three D.C. staffers have officially moved to Grand Junction, though some transferred there from other offices or are still working remotely. I wanted to hear what people in Grand Junction thought about all this, though. I found Jack Mueller sitting outside a coffee shop on a hot afternoon. I don't know what to think of the people who, who are saying, we don't want to move. He and his wife Linda think the headquarters move was a good idea, but Linda doesn't get why DC staffers wouldn't jump at the chance to move out west. Well, anybody that wants to go back to DC deserves it. Plenty of other people around Grand Junction think the same and hope headquarters stays, like resident D. Stancy. I just love that we would have the opportunity to have them here locally, and I think it truly makes more sense. But others weren't so sure, like Miranda Purcell. She'd heard the arguments that moving BLM headquarters out west would benefit the public lands the agency oversees. On the flip side, people said, well, all the decisions are made in Washington, so is putting them out here and removing them from the conversation. So I don't know which one I agree with. One thing is for certain. Moving the headquarters here would be an economic boon, potentially to the tune of $9 million a year in jobs alone. That's according to an analysis by the Grand Junction Economic Partnership. Diane Chwanky heads the city's Chamber of Commerce. That economic impact for us really at this point comes primarily from those jobs and the, and the multiplier of those 40-plus employees. Schwenke says the city used to move with the booms and busts of fossil fuel markets, but now they depend more on tourism, healthcare, and advanced manufacturing. But a diversified economy hasn't totally spared Grand Junction from hardship. I could not foresee the, the recession of 2008 that for our community lasted 10 years. Schwenke says having a BLM headquarters means more than just jobs, though. It could attract more businesses. Being the site of a federal agency headquarters actually kind of puts us on the map and elevates our profile. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis says he doesn't agree with how the move happened, but he wants headquarters to stay now that it's there. Aaron Weiss with the nonprofit Center for Western Priorities disagrees. He thinks that they need headquarters where lawmakers and other agencies are. Everything BLM does involves interfacing with the Fish and Wildlife Service, with the Park Service, with the Department of Agriculture, which oversees uh, the Forest Service. The move could even play a role in whether senators confirm Tracy Stone Manning to be the new BLM director. She'd opposed the move a few years ago. When asked about it recently, she was pretty vague. You have my commitment to dive in and, um, and carry the folks of Grand Junction um, and their concerns with me to the consideration. 
But back in Grand Junction, Chris Brown, owner of Brown Cycles Bike Shop, thinks we don't have to decide between D.C. or Grand Junction. Probably realistically a split um, probably makes more sense. You don't have to be, you know, sitting next to somebody to govern and manage things. That way, Brown says those who want to live in Grand Junction, like those who already moved, can. And the rest can stay in the powerhouse that is Washington, D.C. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. With summer now officially here, it's also the season for road construction. Colorado Department of Transportation officials are warning northern Colorado drivers to be prepared for things like lane shifts and temporary closures along Interstate 25. Despite challenges created by the COVID-19 pandemic, CDOT expects to be able to finish a series of expansion and improvement projects for the region on schedule. Here to explain some of those challenges and what to expect on the roads this summer is Lucas High from BizWest. Lucas, welcome. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. To start off, can you just briefly outline some of these I-25 projects? Aaron, as anyone that's driven on on uh, Interstate uh, 25 in, in northern Colorado probably knows already, uh, you know, this is a really big and, and really complicated project. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of subcontractors and millions of cubic yards of dirt being moved around and, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of concrete and maybe even hundreds of thousands. The simplest way to understand it is uh, CDOT is A, replacing uh, a series of bridges over over intersections, and they're also adding an express lane with the purpose, a dual purpose of A, making it easier for folks to commute between Fort Collins and Denver and all the the towns and cities in between, and also to to improve safety. Folks that have driven that road likely know that there there are no uh, shortage of fender benders and you know, unfortunately, even worse accidents. So, so the goal is to make uh, make the the ride along uh, uh, Northern Colorado's Interstate 25 uh, safer and uh, and quicker. Hopefully, less congested too. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to turn to some of the challenges posed by the pandemic that you write about. Now, construction crews do most of their work outside, of course, during the summer months, so that hasn't been an issue. But uh, you write some of the problems are centered around supply chain issues. As you know, Aaron, uh, the pandemic, due to its, its global nature, really sort of threw a wrench into to the global supply chain. And for a project that, that relies on, you know, uh, so much raw material to, to build the roadways, that creates some challenges for, for both CDOT and the contractors that they work with. So, you know, we're, we're talking about things like cement, uh, things like resins and geotextiles that are used to create uh, elements of the roadway are, are a little bit more difficult to source and more expensive as well, uh, in addition to more difficult to source. Um, and one of the things, uh, so so the folks at CDOT were kind enough to take myself and some other folks on a tour uh, earlier in the week of some of the construction sites. And something that I learned that, that I wasn't aware of that's, that's actually really interesting is that there is a sort of a byproduct of coal production. So it's, it's a kind of coal ash that's used in concrete mix it's basically to to sort of uh, provide some resistance to sulfates and allow the, the concrete to to be a little bit uh, more weather resistant. And you know, since coal-fired power generation was really decreased during the pandemic, there weren't um, you know there weren't nearly as many folks on the road. There weren't folks going to office buildings and uh, commercial sites that use a lot of power. So you know, power plants weren't operating as much. So that coal ash, the the byproduct 
from that, um, you know, wasn't as easily available. So, so that became more expensive and, and more difficult for uh, contractors to source. So it's really, uh, you know, th- there, there are a lot of things that you may not consider um, that go into to impacting projects like this when you have these really global supply chain disruptions. What about some of the contractors that CDOT would typically partner with for these projects? Um, the impact of the pandemic on smaller companies, you know, is going to look a little different. Might that create delays potentially? It hasn't so far. So the good news from CDOT's perspective is that they're expecting to complete this project on time, which which for them means prior to the second half of 2024. So the, 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 the CDOT folks are expecting to be off the roadways and have crews off by, by around May of 2024. So luckily, you know, the, the supply chain issues haven't had huge impacts so far. However, if a contractor has to pay more for, for materials, then, then they could theoretically make, uh, you know, in profit from, from completing the project, theoretically, they could go under. I mean, you wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't want to have that happen because then you'd have to go through the bidding process all over again. And the other concern is, is if a contractor, their margins are, are really smaller than they, they ordinarily would be. That really doesn't want any corners to be cut, obviously. So, you know, th- this is this project is about, uh, you know, partially about improving safety. So you certainly don't want any any contractors kind of cheaping out on materials or, or cutting any corners. The concerns that are out there uh, from sort of a hypothetical perspective, but uh, as far as uh, CDOT is concerned, these things haven't made a huge impact yet and, and likely won't given kind of the the relaxation of some of these um, supply chain crunches that we saw during the, the height of the pandemic. Outside of the COVID challenges, you write that there are a few other issues that, you know, could hinder completing the construction. And I imagine that's weather, things like that. We've had a really, really wet uh, spring, which is great as far as, um, you know, a, a lot of things were concerned, uh, you know, uh, lessening the potential for wildfires and, and uh, you know, taking us out of uh, some of the severe drought conditions. For construction projects, uh, rain is not, isn't necessarily a good thing. The good news is uh, CDOT says that they've built, you know, kind of a, a sufficient amount of, of cushion into their project timelines. But, uh, you know, every now and then, uh, you know, they, they have to ask contractors to play catch up. And, uh, you know, that can mean, you know, working nights and weekends. And obviously that's not ideal, but, uh, you know, it, it allows for them to uh, to have a little bit more wiggle room. Lucas High is a reporter with BizWest. You can read more on this at our website, KUNC.org. Lucas, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it. When the pandemic first began and in-person meetings turned into virtual meetings, everyone from students to employees were forced to turn on their video cameras, and many didn't like what they saw. Over the past few months, researchers have picked up on a new body disorder known as Zoom dysmorphia. This condition is a form of a body dysmorphia and consists of a distressing preoccupation with one's image, specifically focusing on slight defects in appearance, whether real or imagined. Kate Daigle is a licensed professional counselor and certified eating disorder specialist who has noticed the uptick in body concerns since the pandemic began and video cameras turned on across the country. She joins us now. Kate, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much for having me. How would you describe Zoom dysmorphia? Zoom dysmorphia is a relatively newer term that I would say is defined by an altered or skewed negative perception of one's body image that results from spending extended amounts of time on video calls and Zoom calls. I think we're seeing people are focused on seeing their own reflection, their own video more than ever. And 
it's not in always the most flattering way. The cameras that we see through our computers are not the best quality and so may distort how one is perceived or seen, especially if people have already struggled with body dysmorphia in other ways, meaning poor body image or hyper-focused like compulsion or obsession of, of a certain body part. With us seeing our faces and our necks and our hair and all of those things up to, I don't know, eight to 10 hours a day sometimes, it shows up in people becoming hyper-focused on those parts of their bodies as a negative preoccupation. It also can be a result of trying to control something, whereas we all know in this pandemic, there's been so much out of control. And so people feel like maybe that's something they can do something about by changing their appearance. It seems like this has definitely stemmed from the beginning of the pandemic. But when did people like yourself start to notice this? Definitely at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all thrown into it so suddenly. And I feel like it also became exciting for some people because we could talk to people across the country, across the globe. But then as we got more used to it, and we got more fatigued by the pandemic not wrapping up in a month, as we originally thought. We noticed counselors, um, certainly doctors, dermatologists, plastic surgeons started to notice people coming out more and more with, I'm not happy with, with, with what I see. I don't want to put my video on. Um, I want to put a filter on my video. I don't like this way of connecting so distantly where I'm used to seeing my friend or my classmate in person. And we can talk and we can hug and we can connect. And that just was taken away from everybody. So the more that the pandemic went on, the more people started to hone in on what do I see instead of what do I feel or or how do I connect authentically with people and just kind of got worse and worse and worse. I feel like as time went on. Might there be groups that are more susceptible to this? I'm thinking about maybe like students who had to do so much remote schooling this year who, you know, are in their teenage years and have a lot of swirling thoughts about their own body image or maybe other groups. I think it's affected everyone who's had to live on Zoom, but there certainly are groups that are more vulnerable to it. Like, as you mentioned, students, especially those in high school, middle school and college, they rely on social interaction and connection to feel safe and feel secure and feel connected. That's the time of their developmental cycle where they turn from like family for like searching for that toward peers. Like, what are my friendship circles like? How do we interact? And when they were forced to suddenly go online and with no planning and, and sit next to each other virtually, I think those groups tended to become even more hyper-focused on communicating and connecting on Zoom, but comparing themselves more on Zoom because you can only see the head to the chest area. I have clients and people I've known who spent hours just getting that part of their body ready to go on an hour meeting or, or a 20 minute meeting. And that's certainly the case with pretty much anyone who needs to connect and needs to have some interaction. They're all susceptible to it. I'm wondering if there are some kind of solutions that are in reach for anyone who might be listening to this who is kind of experiencing or maybe realizing that they've experienced what we're talking about. Yes, yes, this is not all grim. (laughs) Um, This is something that I'm glad we're addressing and talking about and bringing out because many people are suffering from this. So by talking about it, it really helps see you're not alone and this isn't something wrong with you. This is a result of many things, maybe underlying body image issues or dysmorphia, but also more downtime, more stress, more isolation, more distortion on screens, more 
time on social media where we are seeing so many edited and unnatural pictures that we compare to and, and all of these things that can take on a life of their own. But there is end in sight and there's hope that we don't have to rely on being online so much anymore and stepping away from that and trying to step more into these in-person interactions again, however that may look. And for the time being, if we're still on Zoom meetings, you know, working through this involves some exposure work. So can you sit on a Zoom meeting for three minutes with your video on? And then if you need to, can you turn it off? Just trying to gradually make it less and less scary to be in these meetings, if that is something that is imperative and needed. And to give the patients, the clients power and empower them to make choices of their own trying to identify like, oh, these are distorted thoughts I've been having about my body, my face, my nose. And I don't want to believe that thought pattern anymore. Kate, thank you for speaking with us. I really appreciate this conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, two KUNC reporters have been visiting some of the sites damaged by last year's record-breaking wildfires. We'll hear more about what recovery efforts look like and about the current wildfire season. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.